Hey, excited that you're here. We will see. It is possible. We'll make it through the end of the Old Testament tonight. It is equally possible. We've got another week of Old Testament wandering. So uh, uh, we'll see where we go. But here's what I want you to do. When we left off last week, uh, Linda, if we can throw up that first map. Uh, When we left off last week, we left off with Babylon coming and besieging Judah, the southern kingdom, And we ended last week, we watched as Babylon took Judah into exile. Now, that process of what we call the Babylonian captivity took place, if you'll remember, in in three distinct battles. Uh, The first takes place, the first siege, and and less of siege, more just occupation, is in 605 B.C. And in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes, uh, they surround Judah, uh, they are Jerusalem, and they take a first wave of exiles from Jerusalem, and I guess according to this map, via this road, all the way back to Babylon. And that first, and that first wave will be one that we look at tonight, will be Daniel. Uh, then in the meantime, the king of Judah, if you'll remember, there's, there's some behind-the-scenes trickery, and then back, and then, uh, let's see, 605 B.C., so eight years later in 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes back and they lay hold on Jerusalem again, and they take a second wave of exiles. And in that wave will be uh, those like Ezekiel, who we'll also see tonight, into exile in Babylon. And then uh, as as, uh, Zedekiah there in Jerusalem, the final king, uh, as he is there trying to go behind Babylon's back in 586 BC, Babylon will come, they will surround Jerusalem, and that will be the siege that lasts for a year and a half, where the city and the temple, it is all leveled and destroyed. There will be a third wave of exiles that are brought to Babylon. Uh, and in that time, uh, only, only the poorest of the poor are left there. Some of the, some of the Jews will escape down to Egypt, but that's where we left it last week. And we're going to pick up uh, in between 605 and, and 586 uh, to understand where, where we're going tonight. So if you will, Before we go to Ezekiel and Daniel, I want you to go with me to Jeremiah 29. So you understand what's going on. 605, exiles are taken. And Jeremiah 29, of course, Jeremiah 29, 11 is uh, the verse you've probably sent some graduate on a graduation card because it's like the Christian graduation card verse. And it's then the one that all the young people who think they're really cool and hip with their Bible knowledge goes, ah, this is, this is clearly being uh, taken out of context because the verse is not a promise for health, wealth, and prosperity for the rest of our lives like we use it for graduates. But it is, it is interesting to, to see where it falls. So look with me in, Je- in Jeremiah 29. So at this point, just by the way, this is after 605 BC, the first attack in exile, but it's before 586 because you still have Jerusalem living under Babylonian rule. Jeremiah is still prophesying, and look what is said. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the high officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. And it goes on to say who the letter was sent by and all this. So verse 4, the Lord says, This is what the Lord of armies, which is an incredible, powerful statement, to those of you in exile, because you've seen the armies of Babylon come in and pull you out, this is what the God of real armies has to say. It ought to be a statement to those in exile. You are not there because God is weak. You are not there. You are there because God has allowed it. Because God is the God of armies, the God of Israel, who says to the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So what God says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and fathers, sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may give birth to sons and daughters and grow in numbers there and do not decrease. Now, when he's saying to to build house, to plant, he's saying, you plant yourself. You plant yourself, and you're going to go, well, why, why, why is he telling them to plant themselves? We'll see that in a second. But when he's speaking about marrying there, what he's not saying is, go intermarry with all the Babylonians. What he's saying is, you have tens of thousands of you that have been deported there. 
You need to plant yourselves, build your gardens, make your lodgings, and, and go about life and building family as you ought. Then he says this, seek the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf for in its prosperity will be your prosperity, which is also a fascinating statement. Babylon doesn't honor God, but Babylon is who God has sovereignly appointed to deal this level of discipline to Jerusalem and, and to Judah. And he tells the captives, not only are you to settle there, not only are you to go about the, the family life and societal life as God has called you, but you need to seek the Lord and the Lord's good for the city. Because as that city prospers, you who are in exile, you who are sojourners in the land, so as that city experiences prosperity, so you will experience safety. Time didn't permit us to tonight, but think about everything the New Testament says as you and I are sojourners in this world. From a worldly standpoint, we are uh, American citizens or whatever country you were born into. From a heavenly perspective, if you're in Christ, you're a heavenly citizen far above what your earthly citizenship is. Yet we're also called to be and live as heavenly ambassadors, as citizens. And what does all that mean? There's a lot that can be said there, but not tonight when we're trying to get through the Old Testament. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst or diviners deceive you. And do not listen to their interpretation of your dreams, which you dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. So here's what's going on. Jeremiah has been prophesying for a couple decades. Hey, people, God's, God's going to bring... God's going to bring the hammer down. God's going to bring a foreign invader down. That, they're going to take you into exile. You need to repent. You need to turn. They don't do it. Babylon comes in, pulls them into exile. And even in exile, they still have false prophets going, hey, God's going to get you out of this. Just wait. The hammer's going to fall on Babylon. They can't stand up to the Lord. He's going to take you back. Don't plant yourselves. Don't get settled. You want to actively pray for Babylon to fall because God's and these knuckleheads of Jews continue to believe it, even though they've seen Jeremiah's prophecy come true. And before we go, wow, well, they're a bunch of knuckleheads. We're a bunch of knuckleheads too. Because there are plenty of things that God's word says so very clearly, and it has always said since God wrote it down on the pages of his word, and we continue to believe the false prophets who tell us don't listen to God's word. Pick whatever issue you want. And for many of us, it's not that we wholesale out to one solid thing. It's that we'll believe this amount of truth over here. But in this area, this person says this, ooh, I'll go believe that instead. And that's what Jeremiah is having to correct here. This is, this is the reality. See, even when they see God's hand of discipline come, they still refuse to believe what God has been trying to tell them. And it's in this context that the Lord writes, verse 10, when 70 years have been completed to ba for Babylon... I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity, not for disaster, to give you future and hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will let myself be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations, all the places I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place where I sent you into exile. So just know when you send that graduate the card that says, I know the plans I have for you, you are saying, hey, as God takes you into a horrible season of discipline, just know God doesn't intend to leave you there, graduate. A joke, it's okay, you can process it for a second. But that is the context of that verse. That verse is God's way of saying, look, it really is as bad as you think it is. Settle in. But know that my plan is not to leave you in exile. That's not my ultimate purpose. I do have a real purpose. I will be faithful to my word, but you're going to stay here so that you really understand what I'm doing and you come back to me and you seek me with all your heart. And, and so understand this context as we move into the exile. There are, uh, in that period of exile, there are two primary books of scripture that really fall exclusively in that period of exile. That's uh, the books of Ezekiel and Daniel. And that's where we're going to turn here tonight is if you'll flip over to Ezekiel. So if you're in Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. Uh, the Ezekiel, the book, is, is built around three visions of the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel 1, he sees the glory of the Lord on his throne chariot in Babylon. 
Now, why is that significant? Because the people of the Lord are totally decimated. God's temple is struck down. And yet, even as his people are in exile in Babylon under pagan rule, under harsh conditions, God is still on his throne. Second, uh, Ezekiel observes the glory of the Lord leave from the temple in Jerusalem because of the flagrant sin of the people. And then third, in the future, he sees the glory of the Lord entering through the east gate, which we'll, we'll see here in a second, from the place with which it departed in filling the new temple. Now, Ezekiel's name means God has strengthened. And when you read what Ezekiel goes through, you'll understand he can't do what he does without God's strength. He, he will be deported in 597 BC as part of that second wave in the second Babylonian deportation. Uh, he'll be taken captive along with King Jehoiachin, uh, Jehoiachin and some other prominent citizens. Uh, he'll be living near Tel Aviv, which is not Tel Aviv as in Israel, but Tel Aviv near Nippur in modern day Iraq, which I believe, yeah, there's Nippur. So this is, here's Babylon, but Ezekiel's going to be over here in this area. Uh, and he's, he's going to minister basically from 593 B.C. until 571 B.C. We know he comes from a priestful family, which if he comes from a priestly family, understand that means his family were some of the wicked, terrible, sinful, idolatrous priests of Israel that Jeremiah speaks against, which also shows you God's faithfulness that even if your family is a wreck, God can still take one from that family if their heart is willing to respond. What a testimony. Uh, he's going to receive God's calling. We're going to look at this in a second. He's going to receive God's calling, we know, in the month of July of 593 B.C. on his 13th birthday, which is also a reminder that God doesn't really care what your age is. He cares about whether or not you'll let him use you. We find all over Scripture, God will use a 13-year-old and God will use an 80-year-old. Moses was 80, Ezekiel was 13. God will use who he wants to use, who's willing to respond. Uh, he's, he's going to, uh, he's going to, from the time of his initial calling in 593 till 586, he's going to prophesy about the fall of Jerusalem. And by the way, when this happens, we'll look at this in a second, but when God first calls him, imagine being this, you're 13, God calls you, and you will look at some of the stuff that God tells him. God calls you to be his prophet. He tells you how absolutely challenging and awful it's going to be. And then he says, and by the way, until Jerusalem falls to Babylon completely, the only time you're going to talk is when I give you words to speak. Otherwise, you're mute. So he's going to tell Ezekiel. So look with me. Uh, let's go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse, verse 26. Um, says, now above that expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance, from the appearance of his waist and upward something like a gleaming metal that looked like fire all around it, and from the appearance, appearance of his waist and downward I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance and the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice. So he's out there by the river. He has this vision. We haven't read all of the vision. And we are just, by the way, going to read some chunks of scripture. So just bear with me because I think you seem to hear it read for what it is. But he sees and beholds this vision, and he describes these wills. He describes the cherubim, the four living creatures, and then he sees the glory of, of God radiating, and, and God calls him. And notice his response, church family. His response isn't to jump up around with his hands and spin around. His response is to fall on his face, to prostrate himself, a position of surrender, submission, of reverence. And then he said, that is God, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, which just by the way, is a side note, but I think is a powerful reminder, none of us have the ability to stand before God. But when you repent and place faith in Christ, who he is in his work, what happens with that? The Holy Spirit enters us, seals us, indwells us, and because of Christ's blood, which is testified by the fact of the Spirit living within us, the Spirit enters us, we're able to stand before God. Now, don't go too far that here with Ezekiel, but 
Spirit entered him, he set him on his feet, and I, and I heard him speaking to me. Then God said, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel. So don't worry, Ezekiel, I'm not calling you to, to, to lay down everything and go to some country where you'll never see anybody again. I'm calling you to go to your people, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They, their fathers, have revolted against me to this day. Don't worry, I'm not sending you to the Aztecs across the sea. I'm sending you to your people who are insanely rebellious and have been for generations upon generations. I'm sending you to those who are imprudent, who are obstinate children. You will say to them, this is what the Lord says. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. As for you, son of man, you are not to fear them, nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, you are not to fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, since they are a rebellious house but you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Did y'all catch some of that? They are rebellious. I don't know if you heard it repeated seven times. <laughs> Tells you how rough things are there with the people that would be his family, his friends, his, his fellow Israelites. And he says, and he said, look, you're going to speak what I give you to speak. And you're not going to judge your success. You're not going to judge your value. You're not going to judge your worth on whether or not they respond. That's not your business. Your business is to speak what I tell you. And whether they respond or not, you're also not to fear them. You're not to fear them. And the reason I'm going to tell you you're not to fear them is because life as a prophet is going to feel like thorns and thistles always at your side. It's going to feel like you're sitting on scorpions. Now, I don't know if I just happen to walk in here and say, hey, I want you to take off your shoes and the ground is littled, littered with thistles and thorns and your seat is filled with scorpions. I would bet that next week there will be an attendance of me. <laughs> if I even choose to show up for that. But this is what God describes Ezekiel's life is gonna be like for him to be faithful to the Lord. Now you, son of man, listen to why I'm speaking to you and do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth wide and eat what I am giving to you. Then I, look, I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and behold, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written on front and back and the writings on it were songs of mourning, sighing and woe. Then he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll, which I am giving to you. Then I ate it and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. So there's some imagery here where God is saying, here is my word. You're not just to read it off the page. You have to believe it. You have to consume it. It has to be out of your heart. You're going to consume. You are going to completely and totally surrender to what I say. And by the way, what's the content? Mourning, sighing, and woe. You're not going to be on the bestseller list as a motivational, positive speaker. In fact, what you have to say is going to be sorrowful, hard, not well-received, disliked. And so Ezekiel eats it, but isn't it interesting that as he eats it and submits to it, it was as sweet as honey in his mouth. Because God's word is always sweet to the heart that submits to it. And God said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or different language, whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to people who will understand you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Catch that. It's not, Ezekiel, that they're not going to listen to you as if you're not good enough or eloquent enough or know how to, to speak it enough or know how to give the right applications and illustrations and examples. They're not going to listen to you because they don't want me. The entire house of Israel certainly is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face just as hard as their faces, your forehead just as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or dismayed before them since they are a rebellious house. 
Son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. This is what the Lord God says. He says, and by the way, Ezekiel, you're not to fear them. They're obstinate, but, but I'm gonna give you the strength. I'm gonna make you just as hard. I'm gonna enable you to stand up to that, even though it's gonna be challenging. And by the way, remember all of this, church family, is at 13 years old. Just to remind us of context here, this is God talking to a 13-year-old. And yes, I understand a 13-year-old back then was probably much more of an adult than a 13-year-old today, but it's still a 13-year-old. And notice how he says to him too, take into your heart all my words. Again, and there's just an emphasis there, and this goes for any time you teach the word of God to anybody. You and I are never to teach or speak the word of God and in instructing people without having first taken it into our own hearts. Doesn't mean that we're gonna be perfect. Ah, oh, we fully devoured every, I've taught the whole Bible, therefore I have taken it into my heart. That's not what I mean, but I always say this, every Sunday, I should be the most convicted person in the room. Every Wednesday, every time. Why? Because I'm the one who's had to sit there and wrestle with that passage all week. And if I get up there and tell you, thus says the Lord, but I don't believe it, then I'm a fraud. So understand is when we live in a day and age where it's real popular, and I know this is, this is probably a little generational, um, but I, I see this especially on the younger crowd. We, we want this following, this reach, this influence, this impact for the sake of the kingdom. And we do all this talking on Instagram and social media and this and that and the other. And here's the reality, whether it's social media or whether it's in a Sunday school classroom, you and I better, if we are ever proclaiming the word of God, we better make sure we've taken it into our hearts and we believe it first. That's what he's telling them there. He'll go on and say this in verse 17, Son of man, I've appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them. When I say to the wicked, you will certainly die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way so he may live. That wicked person shall die for wrongdoing, but his blood I will require from your hand. However, if you've warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die for wrongdoing, but you have saved yourself. And this imagery of the watchman is going to be presented again in chapter 33. And the, the watchman is someone who, who stands on the wall, who, who it, it's a, a lonely and isolated position, but one that bears the safety of the entire city, who stands up on the tower of the wall and keeps a watch out when no one's aware to see if the enemy is coming. And, and when they see the enemy coming, they blare the horn to warn the people. And he says, I've made you a watchman. And if I tell you, this is what's coming, the people will die, and, and you don't proclaim it, they're going to die for their own sin. But their blood's on your hands. If you proclaim it, if you say, they may still die for their own sin. Okay? They, don't, they may not listen. But the blood's not on your hands. Now, church family, we have a gospel with a message of salvation for a lost world. Part of that message is, if, if you're not saved, you are in fact in sin and separated from God. And that's certainly offensive to this world. But if we don't ever say that, obviously we're not gonna just say that. You are a sinner, you are separated from God. Here's the good news. But if we don't ever say that, they're still gonna die for their own sin but you and I may be surprised what's on our hands when we stand before Jesus. When we see a brother in Christ, sister in Christ living in sin and no one's willing to step up and in love and grace confront them. We can go on down the line, understand the weight of the watchman's call. And you go, well, God didn't call me to be a prophet. Uh, on one sense, no, maybe not. In another sense, you and I as believers have a prophetic function to proclaim the Lord's word into this world as it is, and we have a much fuller picture than even Ezekiel had. We have the spirit of God residing within us, and you and I very much bear the call of a watchman. By the way, also, did you notice the watchman's not accountable for the response of the people? When it comes to evangelism, and maybe this is part of the reason we get so scared with evangelism, there is no perfect foolproof way where if you share the gospel this way, that person's coming. The gospel is not a sales pitch. 
The majority of people based on the parable of the seed that you share the gospel with aren't going to accept Christ. But the issue for you and I is not whether they accept Christ. We can't control that. But we can control whether or not they even know there's a Christ to respond to. And that's binding on all of us. So from here, he goes in and he's going to give him some charges. In Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5, he's going to give four signs to show that Jerusalem is going to fall. Because remember this, in Ezekiel, prior to chapter 33, uh, verse 21, prior to chapter 33, verse 21, everything prior to that is happening before 586 BC and the full destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. After that, it's going to be after the destruction by Babylon. So building up to that, you have a lot of, of issues of judgment, of idolatry, of calling the people out uh, for them to see and recognize that they are under judgment. After that, we will find a lot of messages of restoration. We find here in Ezekiel chapter 8. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 8, just to give you a picture of some of what well, I'm going to describe for you Ezekiel chapter 8. In Ezekiel chapter 8, God is taking him around Jerusalem in, in a vision, and he is seeing all around the temple people prostrate themselves to false gods and showing him the, the, the wickedness of the people. And then here in chapter 10, Here in chapter 10, verse 18, he sees the temple again. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings. They rose up from the ground in my sight with the wheels besides them. They stood at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the Lord hovered over them. And then they go out. This is a picture. What, what this is a picture of is God saying, here's the temple, the house that David built for my name, in which the Ark of the Covenant, what represents the presence and person and power of God resides. The temple is meant to be a sign that this is where God's presence resides on earth. So for Ezekiel to see God's glory, get up, go to the cherubim, and leave out the east gate means God's glory and presence with the people is gone. Now, Yes, God is present everywhere, and no, God has not abandoned Israel because God will come back. He's already told Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, I have a plan. He's not, God is a faithful God. That's one of the major streams throughout the whole Old Testament is God is a God who is faithful to who he is and to his word because his word is a reflection of who he is. It's a revelation of who he is. God is faithful. But it's a picture to show just how bad things have gotten that the Lord has removed his hand of protection, his hand of prosperity from the people, and from Jerusalem. Now look with me here in Ezekiel chapter 22. Speaking about the sins of the people, we won't read the whole thing, but he says in verse 20, uh, 25, uh, there is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. The prophets have devoured many lives. They've taken treasures and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law. They have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. They have not taught the difference between the clean and the unclean. They have closed their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am defiled among them. Her leaders within her are like wolves tearing into the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to make dishonest profit. Her prophets have coated uh, with whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, this is what the Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion. They've committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy. They have oppressed the stranger without justice. So he describes this picture of the land. He says, the prophets, they're ripping people off. The leaders are, for, are devouring people for their own pleasure and gain. And the prophets are, are backing them up with lies. The priests have failed to lead the people to honor and know me. And this is what it's, it's led to a land where there's robbery and extortion. The poor and needy are oppressed. The stranger uh, comes in and finds no justice because even though the people of God were not to intermarry with the surrounding peoples, if you go back and read the covenant, there's provisions for how they are to take care of the stranger, the person who comes from another land to care for them. 
And look what it says in verse 30. I searched for a man among them who would build up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. Makes you think of Abraham. God, if there's one righteous person, I looked for a man so I would not destroy it, but I found no one. So I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have brought their way upon their heads. Here's, here's the reality both sides of this, church family. Even when things are absolutely wretched, and by the way, remember context. When you hear all this wickedness, we're not to jump to, man, this so sounds like all of the lostness we see in the world around us. No. When we see this wickedness, this is in the people of God. This is, we need to start with the church. Babylon would be the lostness around us. This is the church in the sense of where we first start to apply this and look for this and see this. It says, I looked amongst my people for one person and I found no one. How sad it is how many groups of believers have capitulated to the ways of the world and God looked for one person and there was no one. Hear that call, church family. But also realize this, God really does look for the one. You may be at your office surrounded by so-called believers, but there's a massive gap. And if you seek to stand for the honor of the Lord in that gap, understand God looks for the one. So much more that could be said, but we got to keep moving. Ezekiel 25 through 32 speaks of the, the judgment of the nations. In Ezekiel chapter 33 uh, the, the, the watchman's duty comes up again, and he, he talks about uh, the duty of the watchman to warn the people. This is also where, just by the way, in the midst of all these harsh words of judgment, maybe that, that our culture would say from the Lord, understand this, God's not up in heaven going, woo, finally I get to exercise my judgment muscles. Look at what it says in Ezekiel 33, verse 7, or sorry, verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from their way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then should you die, house of Israel? God's heart never delights. He does not delight when a lost person dies, stands before God in their sin and receives their just judgment of hell. God's not going, ooh, I'm tickled pink. That is not who our God is. Does it satisfy his justice? Absolutely. Does it delight his heart? No. What does delights his heart? When one person, man, woman, boy, or girl, says, Jesus, save me. And he washes him in the blood. The hall of heaven reigns because our God is a God who is a God of life. Our God is a God who seeks. Our God is a God who, with Israel here, wants to make them a light to the world that will ultimately culminate in Christ. So not just that they would know the light, but the whole world would know the light. Our God is a God who wants people to live. Ezekiel 34 describes the shepherds. We, we don't have time, but it's a great passage to just look in. And unfortunately, when you read about the shepherds, talking about the priests and the prophets, when you read about the shepherds failing to lead and protect the flock of God's people, uh, uh, if, you've, if you've seen much grossness in church, you will go, wow, this sounds like a lot of modern day pastors. It's a powerful chapter and convicting here. Ezekiel 33, verse 21. I told you this is the hinge, the hinge for all of it. The hinge for all of it. And actually, let me back up for a second. Uh, don't, you don't have to turn there. Just mark it down. But Ezekiel 24, Ezekiel 24 Verse 15, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and said, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take from you what is precious in your eyes with a fatal blow. But you shall not mourn, you shall not weep, your tears shall not come. Grow silent, groan silently, do no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your mustache and do not eat the bread of, of other things. So I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening my wife died. So Ezekiel's married, and by 20 years old, he will become a widow, and the death of his wife is a prophetic sign to the people that that's what they are still clinging to. Even though they've heard Jeremiah's letter, they are still clinging to the false prophets and to the false words and not understanding the, the discipline of God for their sin and not responding to it. Ezekiel will be a, widow, a widower at 20. 
His call with God will cost him his own wife. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 21 is the hinge verse for the whole, the whole book. It says this, Now in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, the survivor from Jerusalem came to me, saying, The city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the survivors came. He opened my mouth at that time. They came to me in the morning, so my mouth was open and I was no longer speechless. So they get word. Jerusalem was fallen, 586 B.C., and God allows Ezekiel his speech back for moments outside of just when God is talking. And after this, the, the words of Ezekiel will become uh, a little bit of prophecy against uh, the nations, but then all of a sudden there will be a turn, a turn to a future hope, a turn to a restoration of the Davidic king, a turn to chapter 37 where it says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the spirit of the Lord. He set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he, he made me pass among them all around. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Lord God, you yourself know. Meaning, you know the answer to that, Lord. There's not a chance in the world. There is no human ability for these dry bones to have any life. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say, you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to the bones. Behold, I'm going to make a breath enter you that you may come to life. I will attach tendons to you. I will make flesh grow back on you. I will cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you may come to life and you will know that I am the Lord, which is obviously a prophecy for the fact that you and I are born as dead, dry bones. And when you and I come to faith in Christ, the Lord's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God himself comes and breathes life and doesn't just animate bones, but makes us whole. And in the words of Jeremiah chapter 33, he takes our heart of stone and makes it a soft heart of beating flesh. And he takes the law that he wrote on stone and now writes it on our heart. This is a picture of the coming salvation that's there. There's so much more in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapters uh, 38 and 39 will refer to end time battles, Gog and Magog. And you're going to go, ooh, pastor, jump into that. Sorry, we're trying to get through the Old Testament. We'll go over the end times at another point. Promise we will. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 uh, through 43 begins to speak of the new temple, this, this coming temple. Uh, and in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 1 through 5, and this is future time prophecy here with this temple because obviously there's no temple there right now. Then chapter 43 says this, God led me to the gate facing east and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming by the way of the east, which remember what's east of the temple, the Mount of Olives. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone from his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision of the Lord by the river uh, Chabar, and I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord entered the house that is the temple by the gate facing east. Here's why I read this to you, and I wish I had the, uh, I wish I had the picture with you, but unfortunately it's on my home computer. When I got to go to Israel, we, we waited in line forever to get on top of the Temple Mount. Of course, if you're familiar, the Temple Mount today uh, has the Dome of the Rock, has one of the sacred sites of Islam there, and so when you get up there, really what most people are up there to do is to go see that site, and I, I, I just have that site doesn't mean anything to me to go see the Dome of the Rock. I have, so I very quickly, our time was limited, just skirted past all of it and went to a place where there was nobody. Where the inside has metal iron bars, where there's the outline of a gate that's been holed up with stone. I'd seen it the other day from the Mount of Olives on the outside of it, that gate, there's no path to it. It's covered in a cemetery, a Muslim cemetery in front of it. That's the East Gate. And I ran over there because church family, that's going to be the gate when you and I watch the new temple and we see the Lord reigning after his return. That will be the gate that our Lord Jesus Christ walks through in triumph. By the way, that cemetery is there because if my understanding is in, is in the Elamic faith, no holy man would ever walk over graves. So it's a way to say, oh, well, the holy man, Jesus won't, if he's real, won't walk over graves. I know, church family, there's no graves that are going to keep Jesus from walking in that gate. And uh, it's just, oh, it's, it's, it's a 
powerful moment. And so here this is the book of Ezekiel. There's a lot more. We see really two sides, the, the, this expression all the way through 72 times the phrase, know that I am the Lord. Know that I am the Lord. Take, uh, take your sin seriously. Take my calling out of your sin seriously. Take the call to repentance seriously. Know that I am the Lord. I'm going to bring restoration. Don't lose hope. Look to me. Put your hope in me. I'm going to bring restoration. There's a highlight in Ezekiel of the need for uh, a spiritual transformation in the people. This is Ezekiel. There is so much to it. It is a wonderful book. It is filled with both prophecy of their times plus prophecy that has not been fulfilled. It reminds us of the, 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 the weightiness and seriousness of our sin and why we need to pay attention to what God's word actually says and not run around and accumulate for ourselves preachers who tickle our ears and, and say what we want them to say, just like Paul said would happen in 2 Timothy. At the same time, in the midst of seeing things crumble around us and facing our own exile in this world, it fills us with hope. Because God is not a God who leaves his people in exile. God is a God who does not get touched or does not get conquered by the grave. God is the God who walks out of the grave. God is the God who brings dry bones to life. So with the time left, let me just briefly touch Daniel. Um, D Daniel is a fascinating book. There's really two halves. There's 12 chapters. Chapters one through six really are narrative and look at uh, stories, history from Daniel and his life in Babylon and Persia. Chapters 7 through 12 deal with prophecy, some prophecy which has been fulfilled and some prophecy which has yet to be fulfilled. Uh, both find their place in there. Of all of the Old Testament books, by the way, uh, Daniel is the most criticized and attacked by biblical critics. Why? Well, I already gave you the answer. Because the things that Daniel prophesies that have already come true are so precise with him prophesying hundreds of years in advance, which means if you accept that he wrote it and when he says he wrote it, you also have to accept that all these things that have yet to come true are coming true and that causes you to have to deal with the living God. It's written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, the writer sees firsthand knowledge of Babylon, which by the way, if we can flip to, let me just show you a couple of these pictures so you get some, uh, get some uh, visual of when we say Babylon, what, what we mean. If, if Linda, you, you'd go to the next picture. This is an overview of the city of Babylon. The giant uh, waterway through it, around it. You go to the, and, and hang on, we see right here, this is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon with the royal palace in there. If you go to the next one, this is what the main gate of Ishtar would have looked like walking up. Keep going. This is another. You see the gardens here, the gates off the river. You see as well. Go to the next one. There you can see a closer look with that on top. Go to the next one. And we can leave. That's the view from the top looking out. This is where, this is where for nearly the entirety of Daniel's ministry, this is where he is. This is where he's taken as a teenage taken as a teenage boy as one, of the, uh, as one of the upper class of Jerusalem. He'll be a contemporary of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and he will live through the entirety of the Babylonian empire. Uh, Ezekiel will name him in, in Ezekiel 14 and Ezekiel 28 as an example of faith and righteousness. In fact, Daniel is, is depending on how you want to take it, Daniel is, is, is really the, the only big figure of the Old Testament, maybe, maybe Elijah, where Daniel doesn't do anything dumb. Now, I say that kind of comically, but a lot of the pillars of the Old Testament who are seen as righteous and men of God, Moses obviously does something dumb, doesn't get in the promised land. David does something dumb, have consequences because of fall with Bathsheba. You see these chinks. Daniel, when you see Daniel, you just see a man living righteously. And understand that the circumstance, his name means God is my judge. He will be taken taken as a young man, chapter one chronicles this, that he is taken in that first wave. He finds himself there as a young man, teenager in, in a foreign land. And, and part of what Babylon would do is they would take the, the leaders, they'd identify the, the people who would set the pace for culture over the people they conquered, and they would bring them in and they would actually uh, essentially re-educate them to the Babylonian way of things, that if we can get the leaders to become Babylonian, then, then the people will follow doesn't sound so far-fetched from things we see in our own country, now does it? But Daniel made up his mind, chapter 1, verse 8, he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. So here's Daniel, 
taking a very specific part of the law, going, I will not defile myself. I'm going to stand up for what's right. And if you follow that story, there's this key thing that, and Daniel found favor and found favor. And you realize that as Daniel is setting his heart to follow and honor the Lord's word, God is moving and giving him favor in the sight. And this sets up uh, really something preposterous where, where Daniel begins to, to be worked up the ladder of influence and prominence in Babylon, even though he is a Jew. Chapter one chronicles this. It also introduces us to, to three other young men that came with him. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or uh, Shadrach and Benny, if you ever watch VeggieTales and the giant uh, statue of the pickle, uh, the cho- or the Charlie, the chocolate bunny. Um, chapter two, the king's dream. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which he sees a statue. Uh, he, he tells his, his, div- his diviners and dream interpreters, and they can't get it. And finally, they... Uh, the Chaldeans in chapter 10 answer the king, there's no person on earth who could declare the matter to the king because no king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of anybody. Basically, no one can answer this for you, king. You, no one ever asked any of this. The king became angry. He gave orders to kill all the wise men. Um, when the decree was issued, they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And then Daniel uh, replied with discretion and discernment and said, why is he, the king being so harsh? He requested that he might interpret. Daniel goes up there. And Daniel makes it clear to Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to interpret your dream, but it's not because I have a special gift. It's because I serve the one true living God. And he begins to interpret that dream. And, and he begins to interpret that dream. And you see, this, uh, you see this statue. The head is made of fine gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron with feet partially of iron and partly of clay. And then he interprets. The golden head is referenced to the, the, the Babylonian empire. And then the, the, the arms of bronze, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to you. And that's Medio-Persia. And then another, the third kingdom of bronze will rule over the earth. Wouldn't well, it interesting? The, the Median Persian Empire is the one that has two arms because the Median Persian Empire has two parts. Median Persia, the legs of bronze is the Greek empire, which was known for how fast it conquered the known world and moved and how quickly it fell apart. Uh, after that, a fourth kingdom, as uh, strong as iron, that smashes and crushes everything. It will smash and crush all things, Rome. And then, of course, then you get to the toes, which uh, many would, some would try to list out different empires that have been since then. Some would say it's an empire coming. Uh, for the sake of our overview, we're going to save that for the end times as well. But he does this, and Nebuch- the result of this is Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a fascinating when you read the book of Daniel because it's really interesting to see God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. Because here's a man who is wicked, who is cruel, who is pagan as they come. But you watch as you read the book of, of, of Daniel, especially in the first four chapters, God is at work. And there's debate based on Nebuchadnezzar's response in Daniel chapter four as to whether or not Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his life might have actually become a follower of God. I'm not saying he did or he didn't. I'm just telling you there is actual debate because he ends up declaring, Lord, you are the one true God. You're the one who's sovereign over all the kingdoms of the world. Um, And so uh, it's interesting to see, again, this other theme we've seen run throughout the Old Testament, which is unashamedly focused on the people of Israel, the Jewish people. But we see that God's heart is to seek and save the nations, the whole world. And he'll go after hearts that are willing to be responsive, even if it's in and out and there's a lot of patience. Chapter three, of course, is the golden image. And we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up against and, and refuse to bow down. I just always see this picture in my mind. Uh, it emphasizes in the chapter that there's all of, all of the, you know, it's, it's, it's like inauguration day and the best of the bands are out there and everybody's out there and they all blare the song and everybody's supposed to fall. And everybody does. And I just, you know, in this giant crowd, there's just three guys standing there. You imagine the courage it takes to stand there. And when they bring them up, they give them another shot, they bring them up and their speech is just great because they basically tell, I'm going to summarize, they basically tell King Nebuchadnezzar, look, we serve the one true God. He's able to save us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down because we honor him, not you. Which has to be our cry. Now they obviously get saved out of the fiery furnace. Um, You and I don't have a guarantee that when you and I stand up, we're going to be saved out of the fiery furnace in terms of this world. Absolutely, we do in terms of even if the worst were to come and we were to be martyred for our faith, God will take us safely home. 
So we need to understand that, that when we stand, there may still be real consequences we face, but the question, and that's what I love about their deal, they're not standing because God will get them out of trouble. They're standing because he's God. And he is worthy of our undevoted worship, even if it means trouble for us. Chapter four is a a fascinating chapter where Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is the God of the world. And so the Lord puts puts, uh, him in a state of uh, lycanthropy where he thinks he's a wolf and deals with him. Chapter five is really fascinating in, in this sense in that chapter five speaks about Belshazzar having this feast for all the rulers of Babylon. And in that feast, they're, they're using some of the, uh, the temple articles and all of this, and a hand appears on the wall and, and writes something on the wall, and no one can interpret it. And of course, Daniel comes up, and Daniel interprets it and basically says, you've been tried, you've been weighed, and tonight your empire is going to fall. And we know from history that that night, the Persian empire made their way up that canal, broke through the gate, and with no fight, completely disposed the Babylonian empire and took over. Now, here's also why I mentioned this to you, because for years, Bible critics said, look how wrong your Bible is. Daniel's full of fluff. There's no King Belshazzar. And by the way, there is no King Belshazzar. And it's interesting because Belshazzar in the story says, if anyone can read this, I'll make them number three in the land. Why number three? Because when they dug up the Nabonidus Chronicle, what they discovered is the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus, lived most of his reign in another town. And he didn't care to be king. So he made his son, Belshazzar, the co-regent and effective ruler of Babylon, which means Belshazzar's promise to make the man who could read it number three is because he was number two. And by the way, now there's over 37 historical artifacts that describe, king, that describe co-regent Belshazzar. And so one of the beautiful things about Daniel is it gets picked on for all these things, yet time and time and time again, archaeology backs it up, and the history the Bible gives us is actually correct. Chapter six, of course, the Persians have taken over. We still see Daniel in a position of, of honor. Uh, that's Daniel in the lion's den where they try to, the, the people are jealous of Daniel and they try to, they get the king to sign a document and it throws Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, God shuts the mouths of the lions, which you can just fathom that for a moment, get thrown in a cave with a bunch of lions and you spend the night hanging out with a bunch of lions. And he walks out, the king recognizes that's there. And then you get into the prophecy. And for the sake of, for the sake of tonight and time, I'm not going to go through all the prophecy, but just suffice to say, Daniel gets very specific in chapter 7 um, uh, or in chapter 8 with the ram and the goat describing a, a, a two-legged bear. And that two-legged bear um, uh, is, is referencing the, the, the two-headed nature of the Median Persian. And then there's a, a four-legged creature, which... With the little horn, the little horn would be, um, uh, hang on, I'm getting ahead of myself. Pause me here. Uh, the little horn would be Antiochus Epiphanes, but the significance of the four legs is the fact that, again, I told you, Greek, Greek empire, fast moving, but let's get more specific because it's fast moving, its ruler quickly dies, and what happens to it? It divides into four parts. Divides into four parts, and one of those parts, Antiochus Epiphanes, really persecuted the Jewish people, uh, did a desecration in the temple. Uh, he's the one that the Maccabeans overthrew, and, and that becomes a celebration of Hanukkah. We're going to find in Daniel chapter 9, he's praying for his people and, um, and, and asking for the Lord. He sees that the number of years, he, he gets out the book of Jeremiah and sees what we just saw tonight, that 70 years, and all of a sudden he begins to calculate and go, oh my goodness, we're at almost 70 years, but the people aren't ready. They're not ready to go back. They haven't learned. And so he starts to seek the Lord and beseech the Lord uh, uh, what needs to happen to prepare the people. There's obviously still sin in their midst. And um, Gabriel, we'll see the angel Gabriel will bring, a, bring an answer and he'll speak of these 70 weeks, 70 weeks from the return. And here's, here's the wild part when you do all this. The 70 weeks are, uh, it's, it's symbolic. So it's, 70 sets of seven, that's 490 years. And he describes that after seven sevens and 62 sevens, the Messiah would be cut off. Well, Artaxerxes will give the decree to rebuild the temple. And uh, in, um, or sorry, to rebuild the walls in 444 BC. 
And if you go 483 years, which is 69 plus 7 times 7, or 62 plus 7 times 7, that puts you at 33 AD when the Messiah died. Again, the prophecy is just remarkable throughout. Uh, of course, the, the passage where Daniel's praying and, and seeking, and he doesn't get an answer, and then the, the, the angel shows up with the message and says, look, Daniel, God heard you the moment you started praying, but for the last three weeks, I've been engaged in a supernatural battle with the prince of Persia, and we had to bring in the archangel Michael to get me here and all of this, and, and, and you see the reality. Again, God's eyes are on the righteous. There's so much here in Daniel. Then Daniel ends with this interest. Uh, he, he, he will speak about the there's another horn in Daniel that will be a reference to the Antichrist. Uh, this is where you get a lot, of, uh, a lot of the understanding of end times, of the idea of a seven years of tribulation, that in the middle of that seven years, uh, will the, the Antichrist who makes peace with Israel will rise up and betray Israel, and he will desecrate the temple, and there will be a persecution upon the Jewish people unlike anything that's ever been seen. All that comes out of Daniel 10 and 11 and talking about the week and in the middle of the week and, and all of this. And then you get to the very end. Uh, you get to the very end of Daniel in chapter 12. And then, um, and he said, I, I, as, as for me, I, I heard, but I didn't understand. So I said, my Lord, which by the way, isn't that a great thought? Daniel heard all this stuff about the end times and his response was, my Lord, I don't understand. Should make you and I feel good that we don't understand everything about the end times. We know the Lord's coming back and we know some things that are clear. There's a lot that's confusing. It's okay, we're in good company. What will be the outcome? And, and the angel says, go your way, Daniel, for these words will be kept secret and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, cleansed, and refined. The wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. So he says, hey, listen, it's, it's coming. You're gonna understand. Wicked are gonna act wickedly. They're gonna ignore, but some are gonna understand and respond. And then he's going to say uh, at the very end, but as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end, and then you will rest. And then it's this interesting statement, and rise for your allotted portion at the end of the age. What's that mean other than, Daniel, you fulfilled your ministry. It's okay to, to face death. And then you're going to be resurrected for your portion at the end of the age. Anyways, there is more in both Ezekiel and Daniel than we could remotely unpack, but these are the two primary books. When we speak of the period of the exile, there's a little bit in Jeremiah that gives us insight, and then, uh, and then Ezekiel and Daniel both take place exclusively in the exile. They both give a clear message, or, or Ezekiel gives in Jeremiah a clear message to this people's sinfulness, and then Ezekiel will turn and, and look towards, once all hope for Jerusalem seems to be gone, will turn and look to the future. Daniel will give us really a remarkable, a, a remarkable example of how to follow the Lord and be faithful to the Lord while, while working and engaging in a very pagan and hostile culture. We will see him walk faithfully, and then we will see in, in the prophecy that he has given some of the next 400 years of world history play out, but then we will look beyond that and we will see very specific key historical events because remember, church family, the return of Christ is not some hypothetical thing. It's a reality he's coming. It's going to take place in history. There's going to be a literal, I don't know what year it's going to be, but there's going to be a little literal year for the end of this world because Jesus is going to return and he's going to reign and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And, and put those things there. And Daniel turns our attention to those things at the end. It's interesting. These are the, the, the books in the exile. What we'll look at next week is the part where some people decide to stay in the foreign lands of Babylon and Persia. But we're going to look at what would be the return because many will return to Jerusalem and have to set up work restoring the city, restoring the temple, restoring worship, and, and waiting uh, for the one who is to come. And so we'll, we'll go there next week. Um, I just encourage you again, part of my hope in this is that you'll feel just a little more comfortable to read in these parts of scripture. And yes, when you open up Ezekiel 1 and you read about all these funky wheels in the sky, no, they're not flying saucers. No, I can't tell you what they look like. I've never seen them. But there's so much in there for all the things that are futuristic or aspects of the glory of God that we might not fully get in there. There is so much that is tangible and clear and real where we would learn how to walk with the Lord faithfully. And, and I could say more, but we're at time. And so we will come back at it next week. Appreciate you being here, church family. And um, praise God that he is alive and he is on his throne. He is on his throne when 
his people are in the Babylonian captivity and he is on his throne, when we, his people, live in the American captivity and our brothers and sisters live in the North Korean captivity and the Chinese captivity and the name whatever other country you want. doesn't matter whose rulers are on the, the quote-unquote thrones of those lands or sit behind the desks. Our God is on his throne. And may we as people live like it because he's made us the light of the world to reflect his glory to a world that needs him. So let's pray. Father, your word's so good. And I will eagerly look forward to the day when it will be you visibly in front of us teaching us your word and we, we hear your voice with our ears when we walk by sight and not by faith as now. But in the meantime, Lord, may we be confident, may we be humble, may we be dependent, may we be quick to repent. God, may we live like your people, like you intend for your people to live. Jesus, thank you for allowing us to be here for such a time as this. Thank you for each and one, one of the men and women in this room, for the families they represent. Thank you for allowing us to be church family bound by your blood. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.